Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer, living and working in Chicago, Illinois. On this show, I interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. We're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Sarah. I was making funny faces at you. I was trying not to move so that I didn't make noises on my microphone. You guys, I keep uh, I keep telling Anne to stop moving because every time she moves, I hear like the like on the microphone. Um, so that's our that's our little inside joke that you're now all in on. Yeah. So if you're listening to this, I'm trying to hold as still as possible. <laughs> We just need to get you a boom mic or something. We'll we'll figure it out. <sighs> Someday. I know. I know. Baby podcasting is really hard. Baby podcasting. Having and, to move uh, room to room. I know. I know. It's tough. But how are you? I'm great. The sun is out and it's it's warm in the UK. And mm. it, that was a very British thing of me to do to base my mood on the weather. But mm. we don't get a ton of sunny days. So it feels great to celebrate them when they happen. How are you? Oh, yeah. I am. How am I? I, you know what? I've had some back pain this week. Uh, Mm. so I've been a crabby bitch. I am feeling okay today. So I am okay right now, but I have been a crabby bitch this week. Back pain does that. I know. Right. Yeah, it does. But on to more important things, because my back pain is is nothing in the realm of, of the world. But um, it's Pride Month! Woo! It's Pride Month! Yay! I try not to scream right into everyone's ears. And I usually do a rainbow for Pride Month for my hair. But what I've done this month is the bisexual pride flag. I don't know if you can see it, Anne. I and, can uh, now that you're moving Now that around. I say it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by pride. Woo! Hooray! Hooray for all the pride. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll have to try to... I guess I wouldn't want to represent other colors that don't represent me, because that would seem weird. Yeah, that's but fair. I, I myself am cis and straight, so I just celebrate everybody else. I'm the ally that just gets real overhyped. It's funny, though, because, like... I mean, I've said this to you before that you like you have a spiritual energy, even though you're not spiritual. You have a queer energy. <laughs> okay, so here's I know the, I'm not the first person to tell you that you are fully not. Two of my therapist friends in the UK, one is trans and one is non-binary, and both of them are convinced that at some point I'm going to come out uh, <laughs> as as at least bisexual, and so they they have like a a tally. And at this point, it's, you know, it's my clothes, the way that I eat my food. I saw one of them the other day and they were like, you're eating out of like a cute little pot with your oats. And I was like, yeah. And they were like, that definitely goes on the list. And I was like, I'm just eating overnight oats. And they were like, yeah, but you're doing it in a wholesome lesbian way. And I was like, I just thought that was a Brighton thing to do. And they said, Brighton is wholesome lesbians. So interesting. Yeah. So I'm okay with this. And, you know, who knows what I'll discover about myself down the line. Never say never. I take it as a compliment that I give off queer energy. And I'm sure that uh, Alex and Shay, if you're listening, you'll feel very vindicated by that. Yeah, you're welcome, Alex and Shay. Because yeah, 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 I've been told that lesbians find me very confusing because they can tell I'm not straight, but also they can tell I'm not a lesbian. So I I mean, that's what bisexuality is, I guess, right? Cool. Yeah. So here we are. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And moving to, you know, a little bit more somber note, uh, we just wanted to I guess, give space and credence to the Pulse nightclub shooting that was on June 12th. Do we know how many years ago that was now? Um, I don't remember. Yeah. I mean, it's awful that there are so many shootings that there are no way that we could actually remember, right? That 
that it almost doesn't stick out because there are so many that happen every fucking day. Yeah. And it does feel simultaneously important to recognize Pulse Remembrance Day because it's Pride Month and also sad to have to recognize it during Pride Month, um, which was part of why it was such a tragedy or what added to the tragedy, I suppose, in the first place. So sending love and support to anyone out there who feels affected by it and continues to be affected by gun violence and by any type of um, homophobic violence and, mm-hmm. and aggression. Yeah. Yeah. And all of the anti-trans bills right now, just like, come on, come on. It's weird watching it happen mm-hmm. from afar, the anti-drag bills and the anti-trans bills. It's, it's really strange to watch it from afar, but then also to see similar, you know, maybe not uh, legislation as such in the UK. Well, that's not true. There, there have been some anti-trans attempts at legislation recently about self-identifying. So it's, I mean, it's happening here too. And there's a lot of things about living in the UK that are great. And there are a lot of things about living here that are incredibly frustrating. For example, when the UK looks at the United States and goes, Ooh, look at that horrible thing. Let's do that. Let's Um, do that. Cool. uh, Yeah. So it's weird to see, see these things happening in the United States and then see the, the ripples happening here. Um, And I mean, it just shows that our actions have large repercussions individually and nationally. Yeah. Well, and especially the U.S. I mean, I'm just thinking about like the debt ceiling, like at the time of recording this, the debt ceiling limit is close to being reached and they haven't figured out what they're going to do. And it's like it is literally going to affect the globe. Like the United States put themselves in this position to be all fucking powerful. And guess what, motherfuckers? If you don't like use that power responsibly, you are literally going to screw everyone else in the entire world. Yeah. Yeah. My feelings on this have become increasingly personal since I've moved out of the United States because um, everybody wants me to answer for the dumb shit that we do as if it's all my fault or as if I'm an expert on it. I've been trapped in so many taxis with people telling me. and, and like, Or just, I mean, in general, like the moment my accent comes out, and then, mm. this isn't always, right? It, it's every once in a while somebody insists that i i'm accountable for the entire country and they want to know what kind of gun i know how to use and they want to know why i voted for donald trump and i'm like i've never sorry i don't fit in your box (laughs) the postal lady during the last election when i marched my mail-in ballot down Shout out to Chicago Board of Elections for making it very easy to vote remotely. But the mail lady at the post office looked at the front of my letter and saw who it was going to. And she just looked at me and goes, you better not be fucking this up. And I was like, holy shit. Like, (laughs) that's a lot of pressure. Right. I mean, I wasn't. (laughs) Right. Exactly. It's not my fault. Right. Yeah, it is a lot of pressure. Don't feel sorry for me, but it is very much a, it feels very personal to me when we continue to do dumb shit. Mm. So it's kind of fascinating. And I'm sorry that that is your experience. Cause that sucks. It's, it does suck. Um, I understand why others have that reaction mm-hmm. because I think there is a desire to feel like somebody representing a majority group is being held accountable. Yeah. And so I understand where that comes from. And sometimes I'm able to just be like, yep, sometimes we suck and I'm sorry. And sometimes I'm like, nope, I'm not holding the ball for this today. Like, yeah, I get that you're frustrated and I get, that the situation is frustrating, but I'm not going to allow you to make me the, I don't know, the, the fall guy, the fall guy for that. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and actually that, that leads really well into today's guest. Um, uh, yes, ma'am. Look who's good at sideways. 
Dun, 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 dun. Uh, but a lot of that actually, my ability to say, I'm actually not going to be the fall guy for this. Um, and to not need to self-flagellate for all of the wrongdoings of my country and my race comes from the work I did with Dr. Aisha McKenzie Movenga and her ability to inspire self-compassion and to release. She's not releasing the guilt. I'm releasing the guilt. Mm-hmm. She is He's the... She's inviting me to, and there's not one human being, and I can say this with 100% certainty, there's not one human being who has had more effect on the way that I practice as a therapist Mm. and the way that I have, as a person, learned to work with my own identity as a white person, as a straight person, as someone who represents majority groups than Aisha. Um, Not one single person. And it felt so powerful to be able to interview her and to help share her message of compassion and, and for her to help teach some of the history of black folks in the UK. Yeah. It felt really exciting to share that with everybody because she means so much to me. Well, but it was so good. (laughs) Like, I am so excited. And as I was listening to it, I, well, first of all, as I was listening to it, my husband was like in the background and he's like, oh, she does the same like, mm, that you do, <laughs> which is cute. And I'm like, I didn't teach her that. She just does that. She's just a natural. Um, it's just a thing that therapists do, don't we? Do we I not think just so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But her... It's not just compassion, but it's compassion with accountability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and that she, I just, what a strong woman. And I don't mean that in like a strong black woman way. I mean that in like, I, I feel like Aisha, when you're listening to this, please don't think of this literally, but I feel like she's like a tree trunk in that solidness, in that Mm -hmm. rootedness. Mm -hmm. I just, I felt her depth. I felt this, it was a spiritual quality of the interview. Like you and I are going to have to hash out the spirituality thing that you have because what you created with her, I am, I can't wait to share this with people. And I'm going to like put this on my syllabus to have my students listen to it because you did such a beautiful job. You know, you really created this space where I'm guessing Aisha felt like she could come forward in a way that she doesn't always come forward personally. Well, I can't answer for her. I'm glad that that's what you took from it. And I'm really, I'm feeling hesitant to take a lot of credit for that because that's what she inspires in me. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to give a little back to you because I mean, I have, I have a mentor. I think I've talked about this before on the podcast who like, I just, I give everything to him and I'm like, Bob, you're just the most amazing mentor. And he's like, you know what? But the mentee has to meet the mentor and has to pick up Mm. what the mentor is putting down. And I heard her, I heard her say that to you too, right? She did. Not only is it her work, but it's the way that you are carrying her work forward that is supporting her legacy. That's a torch that I'm so proud to carry. And so thank you for that. And when she said that to me in this episode, you'll hear, I get a little bit emotional when she says that. So it's a lot to receive and it's in the best way possible. Yeah. It's beautiful. I I just, we should stop talking about it so that people can actually listen to it. So do you want to, want to read her intro for folks? I do. So Dr. Aisha McKenzie Mavinga has 33 years experience as a transcultural psychotherapist, supervisor, lecturer, writer, and Reiki master. She's also a published author, poet, and editor. And she's just amazing. So I wanted to throw that in there anyways. But I hope you enjoy this episode and enjoy listening to Aisha. Dr. Aisha McKenzie Mavinga, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Thank you. Thank you for your invitation. I'm really excited to have you here. And I'm going to let you introduce yourself and your work and everything that you've done, really. Okay. Almost everything, I guess. (laughs) Well, I'm a retired psychotherapist now. 
but I'm still involved with writing about my work and creating a legacy about my work that's basically about the challenge of racism and therapeutic practice. So I practiced as a psychotherapist for about 33 years, and that includes about 26 years of higher education teaching in uh, counseling and psychotherapy courses. So I trained as a psychotherapist in 1985. Uh, Just remembering that, it seems so long ago. (laughs) Actually, I wasn't given a place on the course immediately. They wanted me to go on a part-time course and I wasn't happy, but I went on it. I said, okay, knock, knock, knock. I want you to let me in. I won't say the name of it, but into this institution, white pastoral institution. So I went back and eventually they let me in and to their, I think it was a two or three year course, a postgraduate diploma in counseling, in psychodynamic counseling, which was an equivalent to a psychotherapy training. And you practiced on the premises. And I first realized that I was a counselor when I worked as a youth worker not far from my home, community centre. And I noticed that the young black boys would sit down and talk to me. They'd come to the coffee bar to buy lollies and sweets and drinks and they'd want to start talking to me about their family lives and what was going on in the neighbourhood and how they were feeling. So I think that was my first encounter with knowing that I had good listening skills, apart from being a mother, which I was at the time, and um, obviously listening to my children in the best way I could. Then after that, I went to working in a um, community project where long-term unemployed peoples were being retrained to go back into the employment market. And so there are all sorts of different people there, people with disabilities, different sexualities, people who'd had a very rough time not being at work for years. And my job was outreach worker, so I was supposed to sort of assist them to come into the project and talk about how they felt and make decisions about what they wanted to learn to get them back on the road. And so I was doing that listening again and supporting in the best way I knew how. And then Aileen came into the project. She was employed as a counsellor. Can you tell us who Aileen is for the listeners who don't know? Aileen Elaine. She's a renowned black woman psychotherapist who has released recently a book about trauma, trauma and intergenerational and transgenerational work in the field of psychotherapy. So she, at the time, came into the project, so it's another black woman, two of us, and was given the job of counsellor. And, of course, people started talking to her, who had previously been speaking to me. I thought, (laughs) you've come in and taken my job, but that wasn't my job title. And then I thought, well, I need to make something of this. And that was when I spoke to a friend who recommended this institute where I could train as a counsellor. And that's what I done. I decided, okay, I'm going to train and then I'll get a job like hers. So she had worked in mental health for a few years previously. So I did, went to my training and I felt quite marginalised in my training as a predominantly white institution that would not refuse actually to give attention to my experience as a black woman and what was needed for acknowledging and using identity as something that you could work with in a therapeutic exchange. So I felt marginalized and not very happy there, but I went through with it. And we had the opportunity to see clients on the premises and to have our supervision on the premises. So everything was, I'd say, 
colonized and institutionalized. So just for some context, the institution, was it in a largely white area serving mostly white clients? Yeah, it was in a rich white mm. in London. Mm. Predominantly white clients. But what I noticed was they had this book where they put clients' details in. And when I saw, you know, alongside the client's name, oh, uh, West Indian or African, and I think, oh, maybe I can work with this person. But what they had done was they'd put them to the back of the book because they thought that these clients needed senior therapists because they were, and they used the word borderline, <sighs> borderline mental health. And that really got my back up. And so I was never offered any black clients. And I used to speak my truth during our supervision, which was, again, led by the white lecturers and supervisors. Yeah. Everything was internal, internal, you know, everything was insular. And I had white clients. I'm a black woman working with white clients. Most of them were right out of my class, being raised in, you know, as a working class poor person. And then I wasn't offered the opportunity to take on any black clients. Well, I felt, you know, I'd have more experience based on my expertise as to some of the racism they may have experienced, which was intersectional to their lives and the oppression they were experiencing. So I never had that opportunity there. Sorry to interrupt. How do you feel as you reflect on that? Angry. Yeah. I'm feeling angry just listening to it. Yeah. I mean, it's 1985, but nothing much has changed. Now it's beginning to change with Black Lives Matter, you know, since the mm. international outrage at what happened to George Floyd. But that's only one of hundreds of black men who have been either killed on the streets by police or put to death in the system, prison system or the mental health system. I was becoming aware of that. I want to just say that for American listeners who don't have context for the UK, black people in the UK face the same issues that black people in the United States face. Yeah. We don't hear as much about it. The news cycle is very different, but black people do face the exact same issues in the UK. Yeah, yeah. So not long after I left there, I went to work in the Black Mental Health Project in Brixton, the African Caribbean Mental Health Association, that had all black and brown faces as staff. We had a solicitor mm. worker, we had uh, some sort of liaison person, and I set up a therapy team because they were only doing befriending. I set up a therapy team. We had a team of black therapists and we were working inside and outside of the mental hospitals, working with people who were also at risk of going into a mental hospital and people who had been sectioned under the 136 Mental Health Act. Which is uh, being committed. Yeah. And there was so much to understand and to deal with in terms of offering them familiar face because many of them had experienced, as they call it, police prejudice. You know, one woman was locked up for singing loud on her balcony. So you told me this story, and it really, it still affects me when I think about that. And I think about, I think it's such a demonstration of the hurt that can happen and the pain we can cause when we don't understand other people and other cultures. And when we inherently assume that someone who is different from us is crazy or different or wrong, that story, that really sticks with me. Yeah. I mean, there was no real mental space in the project to consider that what might have happened to these people that we were working with that racism could have attributed to it uh, overrepresentation in terms of being diagnosed as schizophrenic and taken into locked wards. And some of them, one or two of them, died from over medication. 
and we were also working with the parents who were grieving around those issues as well. So it was a tremendous challenge and it hurts to see your own people being seen as mad because they're complaining racism, basically. Mm. Or either they're complaining about racism or they've been pushed to the bottom of the pile because of racism, don't have any housing or don't have adequate housing. You know, they're trying to get their voices heard and they're being pushed down even further and then given labels. I don't know if I told you about one woman who'd been on lithium for 30 years. Oh, my God. She was 16. She came home from school and there was a double murder in her home. <gasps> mother had, father had murdered the mother and then killed himself. And she was just put on medication. And I worked with her in that project. Mm. When I left the project, I met her on the street one day and she told me she'd got a decent life. She'd married and had children. But while she was in the mental health system and she used to come and talk to me, she told me that they used to give her this medication to take in the hospital. And she never took it. And she told me this story where one day she took the medication to the psychiatrist and, you know, he was asking her how she was, et cetera, et cetera. And she took all the medication, gave it back to him and said, look, you see, you know I've improved. You can see I've improved and I've not been taking this. Mm. So she was doing her own science, really. It was evident that they had shut her down rather than given her yeah. appropriate therapy. And a lot of that was going on. So that kind of like, it's very upsetting and it's a lot of injustice so those are the kind of situations that I was working with. Grief, death, injustice, misunderstanding, mislabeling. And yeah, so anyway, I went to work there. That was a huge and important experience for me about what happens to black people who go down the mental health road. Mm. We live in fear of our children or our grandchildren ending up in the system and being treated in those ways and dying as a result. My training plus that witnessing and being part of those experiences kind of spurred me into wanting to do something about making sure that there was a resource, a therapeutic resource for black people and people of colour. You know, other resources were being built up there was a man who started that project in Brixton and was doing a lot of work with some of the psychiatrists of colour to try and change the system from the inside. And, you know, I was one of those that was trying to change it from the outside, but offering a facility where people of colour could come and talk and have therapies, not always psychotherapy, because they would come into the building and they'd look at you and they'd, you know, you'd ask them how they felt and they'd say, well, this feels like home from home. Because the white psychiatrist for a start. Mm. And one of the questions they would ask was, where are you from? And so they wanted that familiarity, that connection, seeing a brown face. It's someone who may have a deep understanding of what's happening to them out there in the social atmospheres. That was a big influence on my life, plus the fact that I felt marginalised by my training. There was no one, there was no, what I call now, an appropriate gaze for my learning. I was kind of seen as a bit odd, a bit weird, because I was challenging the system that wasn't facilitating my learning as a black woman. So after that, I started to develop some short courses on the process of racism in training, psychotherapy training, they allowed me, because they were not doing the work, they allowed me to come and teach those sessions in the organisation that I had been training in. But then I was only doing that teaching with white people who felt they needed an addition to what they were learning. 
because I was in, in this institute in a rich area of London. So they were kind of topping up what had been missing from their training. Can I pause you for a second? Because that's exactly how I met you. <laughs> because I started reading your book and needed something to top up my training. And we're talking yeah. about how many years later? It's a sinking feeling to know that after decades of doing what you do, and after an institution realizing that there was a hole, that there was not enough active plugging of that hole that mm -hmm. however many years later, I wound up having to, yeah, it does actually blow my mind. Yeah, I mean, and, and I had to do it for myself too. I had to top up. I had to read African-American books that were feeding my mind with the importance of our self-care how powerful I was as a black woman. So I'd read Bell Hooks and mm. Angelo and, you know, Angela Davis. And those were my mentors. Those were my teachers during that time. Mm -hmm. And it gave me strength because I knew that somewhere deep inside me, I knew I could be part of a change. And they were supporting me. At that time, I had white supervision you know, what I call white supervision. I had a supervisor, my therapist and my supervisor were recommended by the institute I was training in. So everywhere I went, it was white, it was Eurocentric, it was colonial. And a turning point in my therapy, because I had this white therapist who lived in a very posh square in South Kensington and I used to go in there and it was completely alien to me I mean there were this this tall whiteness in the building and you know with tall ceilings and mm. Orient type building and she would sit there doing psychotherapy with me but never respond to me talking about being a black woman and how I felt in the training and I noticed it and I used to kind of push her in a way about her silence. One day, she jumped out of her chair and her feet landed on the ground. And she said, I don't have a white experience. Because I was talking about a black experience. <laughs> and I thought, and I believed. I thought, this woman, because I used to use the term black experience, in response, this is her gaze, in response to me talking about my black experience, which basically was about racism, she suddenly realized that she was white. But she was angry. She was. She came out of the role of a therapist. She was angry because I was provoking that in her. So that was a turning point in my therapy with her because I was relieved that she could admit that her whiteness was in the way of her listening to me. And it was not too long after that that I stopped seeing her because my court, my training had finished and I think she'd had two years of me pushing that in her face, basically. You had two years of her. Uh, two years of her. As a not pushing it. Yeah. Prior to that, my first therapist that was short-term inside the institution, this is how they kept it all very insular and not appropriate, really. Um, was a white man and uh, every time I express something that I think I've written about this in one of my books every time I express something that he found difficult that would be to do with the color of my skin and who I am he'd light a cigarette now in those days you could smoke indoors he'd light up a cigarette and one day I said to him why are you smoking in here and the next session he didn't do it I said why are you smoking every time you find something difficult that I'm saying to you imagine I'm saying that to my therapist you know so <laughs> anyway <laughs> it's I mean it's hard enough to challenge your therapist you know with quote-unquote comfortable things right yeah 
What I'm reflecting on as you say this is getting this version of your story, getting the history of it. We know the difficulties that marginalized communities have to go through on a grand scale. But what your story is giving us is your personal experience of how racism, the white gaze, colonialism, and insular institutions have really impacted you and all the fighting that you had to do just to exist, just to become something that I'm fully sure your white classmates were just kind of like going through and not thinking about. They were a group and I was kind of like a thorn in their side, basically. Mm. Once I walked out of the process group because I felt no one was really listening to me and they weren't responding, you know, there's this silence that happens when you're talking about yourself as a person of colour in a white space. So I walked out and and the same thing happened on my MA. I went to quite a high-class college to get an MA in psychotherapy. And I was the only one, again. They had these, like, small groups, and I was put in a group with two white men, and I felt really uncomfortable, and their sexism and their racism. I went to the um, the course director and I said, I can't do this because of what's going on there between me and these two white men. And at that time, I was pregnant with my last child. And I said to her, I did ask you before I came on the course, does this course support anti-racism? Does this course do any work with racialization? And she said, oh, yes, yes, yes. But when I went to her with this concern, she said, but why don't you go back in there and process it? I said, no. Oh. I said, I'm not putting my unborn child through this, and I left the college. Mm. So I've been a bit of a rebel, but I wouldn't stand for it anymore. And then I had a, a white supervisor who admitted eventually that she didn't really know how to respond to me talking about my clients in terms of our diversity, me as a woman of colour and white clients. You know, she said, I'm sorry, I, I wasn't trained like this and I, I don't think I can help you with it. She sapped herself. So we had to stop. But at least she admitted it. It's like my therapist, you know, it's like, why do people abandon the work that they find challenging? Mm -hmm. And when I was teaching in the early 90s, and I would raise these issues about in mixed groups with students, black students, white students, black students in a minority, and I would raise this issue, you know, about what I used to call at the time was black issues. And... Then students would say, well, I, I can't work with a, with a black person because I don't know how to do it. And in my village, there's no black people. I'd never seen a black person before I came on my course. And they would give up. They want to give up rather than we need to change. Um, I'm going to mention, so how I met Aisha was I was reading your second, is it your second book, The Challenge of Racism? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, your second book. And I was, I think I was only halfway through it. And you mentioned that you ran transcultural supervision groups. And I put down the book and I started Googling you to find you. I was like, I, if she'll have me, I have to learn from this woman because the book is an incredible resource. And I want to talk about it a bit more as well. And so you happen to have space in this transcultural supervision group and it was without question probably one of the most challenging experiences of my whole life and not because you were particularly provoking but because you were just asking very simple questions that no one had ever asked me 
Like, what is my experience of being white? What's my relationship with my white identity? The immediate discomfort I felt, and you knew that I felt uncomfortable and you held me in that space, but it is very challenging work that all white therapists need to be doing in order (laughs) to not have people of color having the same experience that you had. To have your therapist, your supervisor, entire institutions kind of abandoning you and leaving you to sort things out on your own. I mean, it's harmful. Yeah. And if we're supposed to be doing no harm, well, that means we have a lot of work to do before we can actively do no harm because there's so much harm we don't realize we're causing because we've never had to think about it. And by we, I mean white people. Yeah. That's right. It's a, it becomes an ethical question because not only was it about white people needing to learn about themselves as white people and the impact of being white and being members of the perpetrator group, it was also what's missing for people of color and black people. And so when I'd done the research that supported my first book, Black Issues in the Therapeutic Process. When I'd done that research and I was working at London Metropolitan University Counselling Services there, on the counselling course I was teaching, I was a senior lecturer there, but I was also a counsellor in the department for students, the national students, and there were many of them were black students, people who were asylum seekers and in the most heinous situations. But, however, the students that I was teaching, what I noticed happened, and this is part of the research, that as soon as talking about racism or being a person of colour came onto the table, there was a silence, and the white students did not know how to respond. And eventually, when I get them talking, get everyone talking, they was white students would say, well, we didn't want to hurt anyone. And, and then they would ask, well, we need to know more about your experience as a black person and tell us how we can help you. So their learning came into the, the highlight. Mm, and it required you to do more labor. Yeah. So the black students were required to be their teachers. I'd have to say, hey, hang on. When you're doing this... What about the black students learning? Because it's the same system. Black students learning in white ways, in white Eurocentric ways, which all of us have internalized. We're located in a white world in the UK, but we're all given the same education. You know, so we're streamlined. And then you have black students being expected to assimilate white ways in their learning and in their development as therapists. And so it was a relief for the black students to hear me say, well, now it's your turn to let us know what you need to be assisted with your learning. How do you want to do this as a black person with your identity, with your experiences in a system that expects you to do it Eurocentrically? And so I had to find my compassion because... The white students needed assisting to be open Mm -hmm. to the challenge. The black students needed assisting in overcoming the internalized racism that they'd experiences and their fears about challenging white students or expecting more from white students in terms of the intercultural and interracial diversity and the impact of racism. And, you know, I wasn't just in one university. I'd done uh, transcultural courses in two other colleges at the same time, three of them, for the purpose of the research, but also because they needed me to come in there and show them some difference in their teaching. Where did that compassion come from? How did you build it? Where did you find it? I used to teach... I was trained long before all this to do anti-racist work with 
some of the most racist institutions at the time, the fire service, the police service, groups of people who were sent, we called it sheep dipping, because of at the time in the early 90s, there was this kind of, we got to re- redress the balance and we've got to look as though we're anti-racist, so we put money into it. So they hired us as trainers, group of us as trainers, black and white, and it was called anti-racist, anti-racist, anti-sexist training. And people, we called it sheep dipping because they had to come. It was mandated. They had to come. But they didn't want to do the work. Some of them would disappear, walk out, you know, because was, this was groups of white staff. And they, some of them would be very obnoxious because they didn't really want to learn what we had to offer them. And during that time, I used to, my anger was increased, but it all goes back to, you know, being a, born a black child, my life story of having an absent white mother, but also having many mothers who didn't recognize what my needs were. I became more angry and it was very difficult to be compassionate with those people that I was getting paid to teach about their racism to each other and to the services that they were offering. And so I'd, I'd respond in a very cold way to them, very cold, frank way, without compassion. You know, you need to learn this. You need to change. And then I think I took that internal exhaustion into some of my teaching. And occasionally, students would say to me, uh, you know, they'd get through and they'd go, I found you formidable at first, but now I wish I was you. I don't want my, my certificate. I want to be you. I want to be like you. And I think during that process, I realized that they were helping me overcome my anger. And I was obviously working on it in my therapy because the terror of being challenged by a black woman was very, very imminent. It was very, you know, I could see it, especially with white students. You know, there was a more friendly approach between myself and the black students because they knew what I was doing, but the white students were terrified of me. And maybe some of the staff were as well. I'm sure they were. (laughs) I'm fully sure they were. Because I would just challenge them and say, look, you know, this, this and this. So I, along the way, as people began to see me more, and as I realized I wanted to explore why my voice became harsh and my hurt was coming out as anger and understanding myself as a black woman, I became more compassionate. And part of that was realizing through learning about Reiki, some Reiki experiences, I had a vision that my mother did not abandon me. I was taken away because of the oppression, Mm. because her white Jewish family found it difficult to care for a black child after my black father died. And I had that realization and I realized it wasn't my mother's fault. And I became more compassionate and I realized I can do this. I can teach people by being compassionate. You know, I can respond to white people in compassionate ways so long as they're willing to learn what it is they need to know to do this work. Mm -hmm. And I think that mainly was it. Do you mind if I describe my experience of receiving this? Go on, go on. So... I think when I started working with you as your supervisee, there was still a lot of, I mean, you know, white shame, white guilt, and a lot of self-flagellation. Oh, yeah, we're the worst, you know, I'm part of the problem. And you said to me, we don't need your guilt. Your guilt is not helpful. But you need to find some compassion for yourself. And you offered me compassion. And I sat there feeling like this black woman who's been through 
God knows what to get where she is, is offering me the deepest, realest, and it hit me right in my chest. I think it took me weeks to accept it because it was physically painful to receive because it meant me understanding that there's actually nothing wrong with me. Yeah. It completely, when I say it completely transformed me as a person, that is not an exaggeration. And it completely transformed the way that I look at myself. And I developed all of this self-compassion as a result of you giving it to me. So there's a very clear case study for how well this works, right? And as a result, I, when supporting other white people in doing this work and exploring their own identities and their relationship with racism and colonization, instead of coming at it from this sort of, I'm one of the good ones, moral high ground, I get to come at it as a we're both just here trying to solve a problem. Yeah. And rather than kind of getting angry at people for saying, you know, I, I literally, the first time I started to get angry at someone for being like, why are you still thinking like that? It's, you know, whatever, 2021, whatever. I went, no, no, no. If Aisha can have compassion for me, I can have compassion for this person. And that has literally been a guiding force in my work as a therapist, as a human, in my interactions with probably everybody. So as a recipient of that compassion, I'm very grateful. And it is, I mean, it is transformative. It's absolutely transformative. I'm feeling very moved as you feed this back to me. And as you share with me what you've done with it, because, um, and I know because we've had quite a bit of contact, you're one of the people who can say this to me very genuinely from your heart, that you've had this transformation. And in doing so, you're transforming others. And now that I'm realizing that there were many people who that happened to and you know, like people would come up to me and say, you saved my life, you know, and I'm thinking, what, what do you mean? You saved your life. But just a few words, and I, it became natural after that, you know, and it was like, if it works once, it will always work, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just about that connection and seeing the other human being. Mm -hmm. So I cannot say that I'm never angry with white people because I do get angry. I cannot say that I never want to be in spaces that are predominantly white, but I'm 74 and I'm beginning to feel confident about being the only one because I still am in some spaces. And knowing that I'm protected, I'm spiritually protected. It feels like you're, like you're a bit like an angel because you're giving me an appropriate gaze, which is rare. But it takes a risk. It takes courage. And I pray for courage every day in the work that I'm doing. Hmm. Because it does take courage to take it and run with it, basically. If there's one person who, and actually I'm going to pause because I, I feel very moved by hearing you say that. And this time I am able to receive it without having to wait weeks. Yeah. The bravery I've known you for a while and, you know, I've gotten to know you much better after our, our supervision and, and I haven't heard you tell your story quite like that. And what has continued to come up for me as you've been speaking is how brave you have to have been for your whole life. And, you know, when you said, I still am summoning this bravery and praying for bravery. And I'm thinking, well, if you're still trying to get it, who's got it? But I'm also wondering what it's like to retire and what it's like to start putting some of this work down and what it's like for part of your retirement to be in a place where you're not the only Black person. Yeah, it's a really 
important questions. You can hear my voice softening as I begin to consider your questions about retirement. Because I've retired from one-to-one and group psychotherapy and supervision, and I consider myself retired from the battle. But what brought me through this is the use of my voice. I don't believe I'm a massive campaigner, but I work on this through my writing. So those two books were key in bringing forward what I call a black empathic approach. Mm. And this is my life story. This is how I got to this point. The compassion is key to a black approach. And you've started noticing that for yourself too. Mm. Compassion is something we can all have. But sometimes our life stories get in the way of feeling it for ourselves and showing it to others. So it's always a work in progress. I'm still a work in progress. I thought I had retired completely. I wanted to stop writing anything academic. I wanted to stop doing any teaching or sharing or showing people how to do this. But I set it up so that it's not like that. And a Nigerian man said to me once, because I said, I'm going to retire, I've had enough of this now. It's tiring. He said, when you publish a book, you're responsible for the readers. And I said, no, 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 I'm retiring. But it's true, it's absolutely true. So I'm working on legacy now. And I'm working on a third, and I'm saying hopefully final book, about developing the black empathic approach, which is key to what we're talking about. That's what it is. In one sentence, it's a black empathic approach. And so I'm considering that as my legacy. I'm also supporting the, I think it's 14 master facilitators that I've trained in doing the Challenge of Racism workshops to assist therapists to integrate concepts that were brought forward in the books and to learn how to do this, to learn to find the compassion to do this. So that's my legacy. And uh, some of them are becoming really robust in teaching this. And I'm really happy that that the work is going to go forward in this way. Well, it's already going forward in this way, that people can teach what I felt was needed for this work and bring it forward and keep transforming the field in that way. So like little buds, you know? Mm. Did I answer all your questions? Well, the last one was, what's it like to retire somewhere where you're not the only black person? So first of all, tell us where you are with all this sunshine that's (laughs) streaming in behind you and the birds chirping in the background because it's not England. (laughs) I'm on the sunny paradise island of Tobago. I'm here two thirds of my year and I am still writing. I want to find the time to publish a poetry collection, which I've always written poetry from a young age. Hmm. And that's helped me through a lot of self-expression, I guess. So I'm away here, but I am deep into the interactional process of living in the village, so to speak, the village of predominantly black African heritage peoples. Mm. In Trinidad, across the water, it's 50-50 Indians and, and Africans. On this island, it's black African heritage. This was one of the islands where slaves were dumped originally. So they're descendants of slavery, as my father was. So I see very, very clearly how the internalized racism and colonialism has injured many people here because it comes out in how they hurt each other and how they behave to each other. 
how they talk to each other. But it also is very apparent in how they protect each other, how the village is like one family. And so I'm living here. There's a house behind me. There's a house across the road, a house across there, next door. People watching me, they know. They're watching to see if I'm okay. The roosters are watching you too. I can hear them. <laughs> That's right. They come here like they come here in my yard like they're my family. <laughs> and they have high expectation that I'll feed them. <laughs> <laughs> so I have two last questions. My first one is, you said this book and this work is your legacy. What is it like to have a very tangible legacy to leave behind? Meaning there are already people like me and a lot of the therapists I work with who speak about you in hushed tones. Your book is available on most bookstore shelves and you've changed the way that people work. You've changed this industry without question. And what is that like for you? I feel there's still a lot of work to be done um, because people are doing it, but I think there's still a lot of insecurity because institutions, some of them are transforming and have taken it on board, but not enough money is being put into supporting the learning system mm. to just do it. There's too many excuses why it can't be done now. And so, and that's very evident in the amount of organizations that want the training, but don't want to pay for it. Mm, yeah. And they want their staff to learn this, but they don't want to pay for it. And so, you know, they have these financial restrictions. They don't want to buy something that's going to be transformative for their organizations and for the senior people working in their organizations so that they can pass it on into the next generations. It's too slow. Mm. But it's trickling in. If this is how it has to happen, it's trickling in. And there are some people who are determined to take it forward. Many people, no, I'm not the only one that's doing this work, but the way in which I'm doing it is different and profound, I think. So what was the question again? How does it feel to be leaving behind a tangible legacy? Ah, yeah. I feel pleased about that. I'm committed to seeing this through mm. so that it's here when I'm not here. Mm. So that it carries on. And I'm not Freud, but I don't mind if people call my name like they called Freud's name. You're You're... <laughs> Highly less problematic than Sigmund Freud, so we'd do well to replace him, I think. <laughs> but it already happens. I hear your name get dropped a lot, and in my head I'm always like, oh, that's my supervisor, you know. And, and some people have probably grown quite weary of hearing me brag about it, but I'm always very proud to say that I've worked with you. So, Thank you, because you're part of the legacy the way in which you're allowing this to open up in your world is all go, you know, this also kind of like affirms my legacy from hearing you speak in the way that you do. And thank you for this talk because sometimes I don't realize how much talk I've got in me. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I really appreciate you being a guest on the podcast, you're the first person that I wanted to interview. You're the first person that came to mind and it feels really special to interview you and to have you here and to be able to share your work because I think your work is so important that it should be shared. So quickly, just before we end, where can people find you? Can you give us the names of your books? We'll put them in the show notes as well. Okay. So the first book is Black Issues in the Therapeutic Process. That book is based on the research and the voices of those people involved in the research. And the second book is called The Challenge of Racism in Therapeutic Practice. This is more about action, use of the concepts, and how to use the work. Also, I have a website, www.aishamackenziemavinga.com. It's all one word. Set the dot com. 
And on that website, there are also some recordings of talks that I've done to organisations, different aspects of looking at this theme and um, other information about my publications. So I've also contributed to several anthologies, including the latest one called Therapy in Colour. I've contributed a chapter in that and I'm one of the co-editors of that book that's going to be published on April the 21st, 2023. So we'll make sure that everyone has access to that. Even for people who are not specifically therapists, I recommend your books. Can't say it enough. Thank you so much, Aisha. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Sarah Buino. And I'm Anne Remy. Thanks to our guests for an amazing conversation today. To find out more about today's guest, you can visit www.headheartbiztherapy.com slash podcast. You can find Sarah at, at Head Heart Biz Therapy on Facebook and Instagram. And you can find Anne at, at Spare Room Wellness or spareroomwellness.com. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.